Good morning. I'll be reading from the book of Revelations. The angel of the, angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil would put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and, will, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Thank you, Paulina. Good morning, everybody. Great to be with you guys today. Uh, those in the room, friends online, great to be with you as well. Uh, hey, I just wanted to give a shout out this morning to all of our small group leaders. We've got, uh, we've got a handful of groups that have, have been going and are continuing, and they're amazing. You've heard announcements for a couple of the newer groups that are going, but um, this is just such a blessing, such an answer to prayer. This is one of the ways that we kind of got pummeled during pandemic was in terms of small groups, and uh, we're, we're finally back up to full strength in that area. So just praising God for that, and so thankful for those of you who have stepped up and are leading in that way. It's such an important aspect of what it means to be the church, how we are to connect with each other, and how we grow in Christ. So thank you, everybody, who is doing that. Really stoked on that. Um, and hey, uh, this morning... So we're getting into part three of our series in the book of Revelation, what Jesus looks for in a church. And this is the, this is the backdrop. This is the story. Uh, so Jesus' disciple, John, he was one of the 12. He is now an old man. He is on an island prison called Patmos. Think here of the ancient version of Alcatraz. And Jesus appears to him in a vision and he has him write, has John write seven letters to seven churches. Each of these highlights a quality that Jesus finds to be indispensable to the church. And that's what we're studying over these weeks, is what are these seven qualities that Jesus is looking for in a church, and those who would, would take his name and follow him. Uh, the, the seven churches, if, uh, if you can kind of, well, I say picture them on a map. I should bring in a map. Um, uh, maybe I'll do that next week. But uh, the seven churches, they, they're kind of like in this big circle. And if you start with the island of Patmos, which is, is there still, it's in the Mediterranean. If you start at the island of Patmos and you go to the shore, the first church that you would hit is Ephesus. And, uh, and that's what we looked at last week. If the, uh, the postman, so to speak, was to continue carrying the letters from there, about 35 miles north of that is the city of Smyrna. And that's the one that we're looking at today. Uh, you might remember for uh, the book of Revelation, there's, there's three main challenges that the churches are faced with there and that churches still face today. Persecution, moral compromise, and false teaching. And for Smyrna, the biggest challenge for them was persecution. And with that, with persecution, comes the temptation to cave in. 
the, the temptation to deny Christ, either by word or by action, uh, to compromise one's faith. And so, the quality that Jesus calls the second church to, and calls us to, calls all churches to, is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Uh, and we'll define that for ourselves this morning as following Jesus, even when it's costly. Faithfulness. So even when, when the road gets tough, we continue to follow. That's what faithfulness is. And Jesus identifies this as the second of the essential qualities that we need to have in a church. So in the city of Smyrna, persecution was especially fierce. Persecution was pretty much everywhere. But in Smyrna, it was particularly bad, and we'll, we'll see why that was. But there is a tremendous pressure that came with being a follower of Jesus. Uh, it meant a loss of reputation. It could mean a loss of livelihood. Uh, it could even mean prison or death. So it was, it was a scary thing. Um, you might know this, but, but those circumstances are still true in much of the world today, uh, particularly throughout parts of, of Asia, the Middle East, parts of Africa. Uh, it is, it is a, a life and death scenario to be a Christian, and that was the case in Smyrna as well. Uh, because of that, uh, I always hesitate a little bit when we talk about pressures we face in the U.S. to, to use the word persecution. It, it feels like it almost diminishes it in some way when we look at what those in the other parts of the world go through as opposed to us and you know, a, a pluralistic free democracy where Christianity is, is still the majority religion. Uh, however, um, I, I do want to use the word today, just think of it as like persecution with a lowercase p instead of an uppercase p, uh, because it is a reality of following Jesus, whatever context you follow him in. So, um, and Jesus spoke of this as, as a universal. If you know, uh, know the parable of the soils that Jesus told, this was the second of the soils. The, the word of God, he says, falls on soil or on hearts that's rocky. He says it, it takes root, but then it, it burns up quickly because of persecution. People discover, well, not everybody likes it when I'm a Christian, and sometimes it causes them to back off. So this is, it is a, a universal thing. So the question that we're bringing to the text this morning, friends, is how can we become the sort of people who are courageous, who are faithful, even when our faith starts to cost us something? Uh, here's where we're going this morning. Uh, we're going to look at what this passage says about persecution. Uh, there, there is a wisdom in sort of knowing what this looks like and being prepared before we come into certain situations to know, okay, this is what... Uh, what I could be facing and what I can uh, do about that. Uh, and then we'll look at the remedy that Jesus gives and we'll finish with a couple of practices to help us grow in this matter of, uh, of being those who are faithful to Christ even when it's hard. So let's pray together and we'll get into our text. Uh, Father God, we thank you for your love for us. Uh, we thank you, God, that you are always faithful to us, that you never give up, give up on us. God, that you're always for us. We thank you that even when life is difficult, God, that you are right there beside us. You never step away. You never abandon us. And that ultimately nothing can separate us from your love. 
We pray, God, as we worship this morning in, in song and in sacrament and word and in fellowship, we pray that you would meet us. We pray that you would strengthen us in you. And God, for each of us, no matter where we're at on our journey with you, we pray that you would meet us right there and draw us closer to Jesus this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, friends, so you might remember uh, for each church, each of these seven letters that Jesus dictates for John, uh, Jesus gives a word of encouragement, right? He starts by saying, I see you. I see the things you're doing right. I see your hard work. I know what you're doing. He starts with that. Uh, And then uh, after that comes a correction or a command where Jesus says, okay, this is what I want you to do. This is your next faithful step as a church. And then finally for each letter, there's a word of promise where he says, if if you listen, right, if you listen to these words, this is what you can expect. God will reward you in that. And this is what that will look like. Uh, And then in addition, each letter to each church also begins with a description of who Jesus is. So if you're here for week one, John had this vision of Jesus, and, and he was kind of this fiery figure and all this. And in each letter, some aspect of that gets highlighted for the particular church that Jesus is talking to. And that's where we start in Revelation 2.8, where it says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Let's pause there for a moment. Uh, In week one, we posed the question, what if the first thing that we need, whatever difficulty we're facing, what if the first thing that we need is just to see Jesus a little more clearly? And Jesus is revealing himself to this church in Smyrna, in, in these ways. He says he is the first and the last. Right? Now, this is a reference to Jesus' divinity. Right? This goes back to the book of Isaiah, and this is one way that God is described in the scriptures as the eternal one, the one who's both, both first and last, and by extension, everything in between. And then Jesus also describes himself as the one who died and came to life again. So here we have a reference to the resurrection of Jesus, to his victory over death. Now, both of these aspects of who Jesus is, both of these are true for every church, everywhere, right? This is just who Jesus is. But why did the church in Smyrna, why do they need to see Jesus described in this particular way? This is super fascinating. So check this out. So first, Smyrna liked to refer to itself as the first city of Asia, right? First as in leading, as in the best, as in numero uno, right? The first city of Asia. Their coins, in fact, had the motto stamped on it, first city in Asia in size and beauty, right? So, you know, they've, they've got a, a healthy estimation of self, you know, at minimum there, right? Um, and then the sense of being first, of being best, This was tied to a deep and long-standing patriotic loyalty to Rome, right? They're part of the larger Roman Empire, uh, and part of their loyalty to Rome came about several centuries earlier. So in the year 590 BC, the city of Smyrna was completely wiped out, reduced down to rubble, and for centuries, it it lied dormant. It was a, a dead city. And Rome came along, and they invested heavily in the rebuilding 
of Smyrna. And, and the new Smyrna was great. It was magnificent. It was beautiful. All these things. And so they just loved Rome and all things Roman. Uh, in fact, there were seven cities in that greater region that were competing to, uh, to be the city that got to build a temple to an emperor named Tiberius. And Smyrna outbid them all. They won the competition. So they got to, to create this great temple. They're really proud of this. And so the city slogan was Rome first in all things. Rome first in all things. So picture the people of Smyrna. They are so excited about being the first and the best and the most beautiful, and it's Rome first all the time. Picture big foam fingers. We're number one. We're number, right? They are first. So the cultural message in this particular city and for the place where this church was living out their lives in Jesus was explicitly the empire comes first. Rome first above all things. And this is really important too. People there in Smyrna were required to prove it. Uh, In the year 80 AD, which was about 10 to 15 years before the book of Revelation was written, in the year 80 AD, an emperor named Domitian passed an edict that said that all Roman subjects were required to worship the emperor as God. And in Smyrna, the way that this played out is you would go to this temple that they had, right, this Roman temple that they worked so hard uh, to have as part of their city, you would go to the temple and you would take a pinch of incense and you would throw it into the fire and repeat the words, uh, Kairos, uh, no, Caesar Kyrios, which means Caesar is God, Caesar is Lord. And this would prove that, you know, you're a good Smyrnan, you're a good Roman subject because you're willing to worship the emperor. In fact, they had a name for this. They called this the little act of worship. And it was little because you didn't have to give up any other gods. Wherever you came from, whatever your heritage, keep the gods that you had. You just had to tack onto that just this little bit of Caesar worship, right? It's no big deal. Once a year, you show up, just a little pinch of incense, boom. Costs you nothing. Well, for the Christians, it did cost something. This was a deal breaker. Because their declaration is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord and there is no other. So they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And you can probably see how persecution became a major issue there. Rome first in all things. And the Christians said no, not for us. Jesus shows himself to the Smyrna church is the one who is first. Because Rome isn't first and Smyrna isn't first. Jesus is first. And he reminds them, this is who I am. I am the one who is first and last and everything in between. Now, that's the first descriptor. The second that Jesus is the one who died and came to life again. So I mentioned Smyrna was destroyed in the year 580 BC, totally wiped out, ash heap of history, it's gone. But then 300 years later, 290 BC, with the help of Rome, the city was rebuilt 
and now it's great, right? Beautiful architecture, they've got a great infrastructure, they've got crazy innovations for the time, things like plumbing, you know, this is super rare. Uh, it's a cultured city, very progressive, very wealthy, very proud of being modern Romans. And the city became known as, get this, the city that died yet lives. They were the resurrected ones, and they were very proud of it. And so Jesus comes to the church in that city, saying, in essence, as impressive as your culture may be, I am the one who's truly living. I am the one who died and came back. I am the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died, and yet I live. That's how Jesus portrays himself to those in that city. Now, you following so far? Okay, hold on to those, because those are going to come up again as we're talking about how to live this out. Now, reading on, uh, we come to the, the word of encouragement that Jesus gives to the church in Smyrna. This is verse 9. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And then here's the command. He says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. And then here's the promise. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So the command, it's twofold, right? He says to them, don't be afraid. So, you know, be courageous. And then he says, be faithful. Be courageous and be faithful. Uh, they need courage because, of course, these persecutions, the afflictions is the way John puts it in verse 9. Uh, this, this is a great little Greek word here that stands behind our English word for afflictions. It's, it's the word flipsis. Uh, flips us in, and it refers to crushing pressure. We have something on all sides pressing into you until you're about to break. So think here of an empty soda can, right? And as you squeeze it or you step on it, the pressures around it cause it to collapse. Jesus says, I see what's happening there. I see the crushing pressure of the society all around you and the way that you want to collapse under the weight of it. He says, be courageous in that. Be faithful. Now, there's, there's three aspects of this persecution that uh, I want to tease out a little bit. It's, it's good for us to see these so that we, we, we know how to recognize. We know what to expect. Here, here's an example of that. So, um, Marathon runners, they, they talk about uh, hitting the wall, right? Have you ever heard of this? They talk about hitting the wall. It usually happens somewhere between mile 20 and mile 23. 
you've trained, you've done all the things, you ate a big plate of spaghetti the night before, you're all carved up, you're ready to go, and you're running. But for most people, they're, they, they run out of juice somewhere around mile 20 to 23. And at that point, you, you kind of have to make a choice. Do I keep going or not? You hit the wall and you gotta get through this part and then, and then you know, typically you get a little second win, you can run the last couple miles, limp your way across the finish line, get your medal, it's great. Uh, but knowing this, right, all runners know this, that this happens. Uh, does it cause runners to say, well, that would be a mistake, I'm not gonna do a marathon. And you're like, yeah, that's exactly the lesson, no, no. Um, but no, for runners, it's, it's like, okay, I know that's coming, because I know that's coming, that is gonna help me persevere when I get there, right? You, you know what that looks like. You know the pressure you're gonna hit around those miles. Now listen to the ways that the pressure manifests for the church in Smyrna, because in a lot of ways, uh, it's, it's how it manifests for us as well, how it manifests for all believers. So uh, there's, there's three of these that get mentioned here. Uh, persecution as exclusion, as slander, and as hostility, right? First is exclusion. So Jesus says to this church, I know your affliction and your poverty. Poverty. Now this is interesting because Smyrna was a wealthy city. They were known for having prosperous citizens. This is part of their boast. This is part of what's behind the big foam finger. We're number one. Our people are doing great. So, why is the church in particular poor? Why are they experiencing poverty? And the issue here was exclusion. It was a byproduct of being excluded. So to be a Christian in that environment, to follow Jesus meant that you experienced a loss of standing because of your association with Jesus. You were you're out of the club. You are voted off the island. You are unfriended, right? Oh, you're a Christian? Hmm. I'm just going to keep myself a bit separate. So there's a real loneliness that came with that. And this had a ripple effect into people's financial lives because that kind of translated naturally into, oh, okay, so you're, you're one of these Christians. I don't think I want to do business with you. I'm going to take my business elsewhere. Or... I'm not sure I want you working for me if you are a Christian. And so, so poverty came along as a byproduct of this, right? And um, I mean, you, you talk about pressure. I mean, can you imagine this? Can you imagine if you're a parent and you're wondering how you're going to feed your kids and you can't find work because of your association with Jesus? How tempting does that that little act of worship become. To say, well, I won't walk away from Jesus. I'm just gonna give a bit of my allegiance to Caesar as well. Uh, for us, I think here it's, it's pretty rare that exclusion would be such that it results in poverty. But for you and I, if you are faithful to Jesus, you very well might find yourself getting excluded at times. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you this, for those here who have kids, your kids will definitely experience exclusion if they are following Christ. And that's something that we have to prepare them for. 
But um, think of us this way, perhaps. Uh, in some circles, and I don't know if these are part of your friend circles or not, but in, in some circles, if you say that America has overcome its problems with racism, you will be praised. You will be thought of as being in the know. You'll be thought of probably as a person who is really proud of their country, really loves their country. Right? But if maybe you say, yeah, we've come a, a very long way in how we deal with race, but we still have a long way to go. And maybe you point out some of the increases that America is experiencing in hate crimes or the imbalances that we have in our justice system or the racial wealth gap, uh, there's a good chance that you're going to get voted off the island in those circles, that those thoughts might not be welcomed. And the idea that maybe this is an area that Jesus wants us to keep working on as a people, right? Those, those are thoughts that can get you excluded. Or maybe you're in a, a different social circle, and maybe if your sexual ethics are the same as our cultures around us, and you don't balk at all at unmarried couples living together, you think everyone should have the right to love whoever they want to, to love, then you'll be praised, you know, you'll be thought of as enlightened and sophisticated, and you know, if, if you're known as a Christian, you'll be sort of our sort of Christian, the one that we want to have around. But if you hold to a, a biblical sexual ethic and you say that sex is only meant for marriage and that marriage is designed for a man and a woman, then you might get voted off the island. You may find yourself excluded in those circles for your allegiance to Christ. Right? Does this make sense? And, I mean, you could fill in the blank with so many other examples. Or here's one where if... If you, um, you know, if, if you say in some circles we need to care as much about the unborn once they leave the womb and what it looks like for that child potentially growing up in poverty, you say that's something we need to care about. And then at the same time, you say, and you know what? Abortion takes a life. You may get yourself simultaneously voted off of both those islands at the same time. But here's the thing. To follow Jesus in word and in deed means that we will, by definition, be taking positions at times that clash with our culture. And the natural result of that often, not always, but often, is exclusion. That's part of the pressure, that pressure that we find in following Christ. In addition to exclusion, pressure for those in Smyrna, also came in the form of slander. Right? It says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Right? That's, man, that's a harsh one. Um, what was happening there? Um, in, in brief, here's the situation. That, that little act of worship. So sometime before, uh, the Jews in the Roman Empire had secured an exclusion to that. They were not required to be part of the annual go to the temple, give the pinch of incense, that whole thing. And there's kind of a history to why that happened and why Rome relented with the Jews. And then you've got to remember here, too, that Christians didn't consider themselves a separate religion for a couple of centuries. They thought of themselves as Jewish. They're just the fulfillment 
of what they saw the Old Testament pointing to in Jesus, etc., etc. So they're thinking of themselves as Jews, and they would regularly go to the synagogue as well. But in Smyrna, the thing that was happening there is Jewish folks there wouldn't let the Christians share in their exemption. So the Jews were exempt from the small act of worship, but the, the Christians, they would say, well, they're not part of us. And in fact, they went as far as, as pointing the finger at the Christians and um, uh, kind of informing on them to Rome. And so part of the persecution the Christians were experiencing there was also from the Jewish population, right? And keep in mind, this is a Smyrna thing. Don't generalize this to Jews in general and, and the ancient or the modern world. Uh, you know, Jesus is a Jew and John is a Jew and all this. But this is the reality that was happening in Smyrna. And Jesus says, you know, the, the designation they would typically have that you're a synagogue of the Lord they're not worthy of that title anymore. He says they are a synagogue of Satan. Uh, so slander was part of their experience too. And friends, reality is for them and for us, if you follow Jesus, there are times where you will be slandered. People will say mean things, unkind things, untrue things. You will be mocked. You will be insulted. You will be made fun of. And Jesus is not surprised by this. Uh, it actually comes up quite a bit in the Gospels. So listen to this. This is Luke 6. This is representative. Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. That's a good list, isn't it? Exclude, insult, and reject. He says this will come. And he says, you're blessed when that happens. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Right, so here Jesus says, this is going to happen. This is part of, of what you can expect to experience. Congratulations, everybody. Right? This, is, uh, this is not a bug. This is a feature. This is part of what is going to happen if you decide that you are going to follow Jesus. And then, you know, to make it crazier still, he says, yeah, and when this happens, you're actually blessed. You're blessed. Because this is how they talked about those who followed God in the past. This is how they talked about the prophets um, he says it's actually a blessing. You're in good company. The prophets and elsewhere, uh, Jesus says the reason they hate you is because they hated me first. So the company you're in is good company. And then, you know, there's this warning here too. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So, no, that's a challenging statement. If no one ever thinks ill of you, why is that? Is it possible that's because you've already caved into the empire and there's nothing distinct about you that people might push back against? Uh, it's, it's a challenging thing to think about. Uh, now, friends, don't mishear me on this. Uh, I'm not recommending that you develop a martyr complex, right? Not... Uh, 
not recommending that you go around as a Christian being really obnoxious, and so people mistreat you and hate you. Uh, that's, that's not a good thing. In fact, in Colossians 4, it says, be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Right? Don't be a jerk. If you're a jerk, that's not persecution you're experiencing. That's the byproduct of being a jerk. <laughs> but anticipate that part of what is going to come your way, if you are following Jesus, people will exclude you. People will slander you. There will be times when you are spoken ill of. Don't run from that. It's part of the package. In another context, Jesus explains why this is. Right? Because I know sometimes it's weird for us. It's like, who couldn't like Jesus? Jesus is great. And it's true, everyone does like Jesus until you actually start reading some of what he said. And you're like, oh, well, I'm not sure I like that. He, he talks about this. This is John 3. Jesus says, speaking of himself, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. Why? He says, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Here's how it works, friends. When light presents itself, darkness has two choices. It can either acknowledge the truth and reality of what that light reveals, or it can do all it can to snuff out the light. When we're experiencing persecution, often that's what it is. Uh, What's exposed is uncomfortable. So I've got to turn out that light, right? Uh, So uh, we have to be ready for that, to make our decision in advance, to decide to be faithful, to follow Jesus even when we are slandered. Uh, finally here, hostility. It says in verse 10, I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. So Jesus says it's going to get even worse. The exclusion is bad, the slander is bad, but there is going to be open, unbridled hostility where some of you will find yourselves put in prison And some of you may even end up dying. Uh, In fact, um, early church history tells us that uh, Polycarp, who is the most most famous Christian martyr of the second century, uh, it's just a few years actually after this letter was written, he was martyred in Smyrna. This is where that particular outbreak of persecution began. And again, I mean, imagine the pressure around this, right? The empire made it so easy. It's just this little act, that's all. And you can escape all of this discomfort, all of this pressure. A pastor friend of mine was was on sabbatical here this last year. He and his wife, uh, they got to spend a little bit of time in France. And they were invited by a friend to come and witness a baptism with a bunch of Muslim converts to Christianity. And uh, he, he said it was amazing. And during this baptism, he went to his host and he was saying, this is one of the most joyful gatherings I've, I've ever seen of Christians and one of the most joyful baptisms I've ever witnessed. And his host was like, yeah, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing. And he said, you know, you should know this about it too. Uh, that, that these folks aren't permanent residents of France, that at some point they're going to be going back to their home countries 
He said almost every single one of these joyful Christians that you see today, they know that when they go home, they will be disowned by their families. And he says probably not all of them, but some of them will be killed when they return home because of what you're seeing today, because of their allegiance to Christ and this baptism that they are experiencing. And you know, it's interesting. Um, I think pretty much any time I, I hear us in the West talking about these kinds of intense persecutions that are happening elsewhere in the world, um, there's always somebody who, as we're thinking about and we're admiring the faithfulness of these people, somebody who will ask, you know, I, I wonder how I would do. What would I do in that circumstance? And I wonder that about myself too. Uh, but here's the thing. And friends, really, really consider this. Uh, you and I have different circumstances. You and I experience persecution with a lowercase p. But that question of how would I do in the face of this, reality is we have a chance to answer that every day. We have a chance to answer that question on the regular. No, we don't, and we probably never will experience persecution at that level. But at the level that we experience it here, we do experience exclusion. You will experience slander. There will be times of open hostility. The question for you and I is not what would we do if we were there? What would we, what would we do if we were them? The question you and I need to be asking ourselves is what am I doing now? Am I being faithful in word and in deed to Jesus now in the face of the pressures that I face here? Because I, I tell you, too often as Western Christians, we are soft. And it takes almost nothing for us to cave. Uh, we sometimes can't even hold a mildly unpopular position in the midst of our family or our circle of friends because the pressure feels too much. But friends, Jesus calls us to be faithful, to deny Christ neither in what we say or in what we do, but simply to remain true to him. How do we do this? How do we live into this? Because I know and you know from experience it isn't easy. I, I want to end with, with two questions, two spiritual practices that I think can maybe give us a little bit of focus on this. I'm framing them as questions, but, um, but just asking the question, how can we grow in our capacity to be faithful when we come to those moments when we find that it is costing us something? Uh, and we're drawing here again from, uh, from how Jesus reveals himself to the church in Smyrna as the one who's first and last and the one who died and is alive again. Question one is this. Am I putting Jesus first? Am I putting Jesus first? Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well. The, all these things are all these things that, 
they and we are pining after on the regular. How can I have a happy, blessed life? Jesus says, the way you do it is this. Seek the kingdom first. Put me first, he says, and I'll worry about all of these other things. So for Smyrna, their cultural pressure was, well, Rome first in all things. Uh, What's the pressure you feel? What comes first? The American dream? The values of your preferred political party? The values you were raised with in your family? The opinions of your friend group? How you look to others? What comes first? Jesus says, put me first. And so this is a question just to to carry with us through the day. Am I putting Jesus first? As we come to the the dozens of little crossroad moments, right? Am I putting Jesus first? You come home and those that you live with left their dishes in the sink and you're like, dude, again? What do you do with those dishes? Do you do them? Or do you leave a note that says, do your freaking dishes? What if we looked at this? <laughs> as a perfect reaction. What, <laughs> what if we look at those questions through the lens of, am I putting Jesus first? There's an opportunity for you to advance at work, but it's going to require you to make moral compromises, or it's going to require you to shade the truth. Well, am I putting Jesus first in the way that I approach those decisions? You find that somebody's hurt you, or maybe that you've hurt somebody else, and you don't want to go to them. You'd rather just write them off. Am I putting Jesus first in that decision? What would it look like to seek Jesus first and to run our decisions through that particular filter? We might ask, well, what does this have to do with persecution? It has everything to do with persecution. Because if you and I do not develop the habit of putting Jesus first in the small and ordinary and mundane things of life, then when we come to an instance of crushing pressure, then we don't stand a chance. We develop the character to follow Jesus in times when it's costly by following Jesus, putting him first, in times when it's not. Make sense? Am I I putting Jesus first? Second question. Am I living for eternity or for today? For eternity or for today? I'm, I'm struck here by this phrase. Jesus says, you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, 10 days. Uh, 10, this is one of those symbolic numbers in ancient thought. 10 was used to indicate something that is relatively short, right? And so Jesus is saying, 10 days. You are going to, he's not talking a literal 10 days here. He's saying you're going to experience persecution, but it's going to be for a defined period of time. And that time is going to be relatively short, right? So, In essence, Jesus is saying, hey, persecution is short, but heaven is long, right? The exclusion, the slander, the hostility, it is going to pass, but eternity is not. And friends, I I think this is another uh, 
another aspect of life in the modern Western church where I think we've really lost this. Uh, we actually kind of even mock the idea that we should be focused on the next life and the reward that is to come. Uh, but the truth is, here in this passage and so many times in the New Testament, this is exactly what Jesus tells us to focus on. Not everything will be made right this side of heaven. In heaven, it all will. But not everything will be made right, and we can't expect that it will be. So Jesus says to this church that is suffering, it's going to be 10 days, right? I wish he said it's going to be two. It's going to pass so quickly, I'm going to deliver you from it right now. But in this case, he doesn't. He says, you're going to have to go through this, not around us. But I'll be there on the other side. It's just 10 days. You can do this, he says. Be faithful to me. And the promise, he says, be faithful and you will receive the crown of life. He says, be faithful. You won't be hurt by the second death. Right in the Luke passage that we we looked at, he says, great is your reward in heaven. It's coming. But first, you've got to be faithful during the course of of these 10 days. Now, uh, sometimes, because heaven has a way of, sp- of working backwards, of spilling into this life, sometimes we, we, get, we get the good here too, probably more than you and I deserve. But at minimum, at minimum, it is coming. Am I living for eternity or for today? Friends, the wise person will always Give up what they cannot keep to gain what they cannot lose. Am I living for eternity or am I living for today? Uh, You know, wrapping up, it's uh, it's interesting to note that uh, that the city of Smyrna still exists. Uh, It's now called Izmir. It's in Turkey. Uh, And the church there is actually quite strong. Here's what's interesting to note about that, too, that in 20 centuries, it's been very rare that the pressure has lifted. Uh, For most of the last two millennia, Smyrna has remained a really difficult place to be a Christian. And rarely has the church faltered. They remain faithful even today. Let's pray that we might do the same.